Quick message before we start today's show, I want to tell you guys about a great libertarian blog called The Liberty Theorist. The Liberty Theorist is where our friend Brad Tracy discusses all of the shady things government has been up to and why libertarianism is the only viable way to keep power out of the hands of government. Brad is a Rothbardian libertarian who believes that the U.S. is desperately in need of prison reform. I'll give you a uh, hell yeah to that. I agree there. That victimless crime should be abolished. Yes, agree with that. And that we need to end the welfare, warfare, and spy state. Yep, follow along with you there. And that true free market capitalism is the only way to go. Well, socialism kills human production. Can't argue with that. Bottom line, the government should stay the hell out of your life. You can find The Liberty Theorist by going to medium.com slash at, that's the at sign, Liberty Theorist. You can also find it on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash The Liberty Theorist. Check it out today. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here at Lions of Liberty, we have a bit of a uh, variety channel. My Friday show, Felony Friday, is one of the great shows, but there's two more on Monday and Wednesday. Monday's show hosted by Mark Clare, Wednesday by Brian McWilliams. They both bring their own flavor and flair to the podcasting game. Check those out. Subscribe to Lions of Liberty on your podcasting app to get all three. And today's episode of Felony Friday is another great one. I have an awesome guest lined up who is going to share another story of injustice in the criminal justice system. And we're going to shine a light and we are going to keep the momentum going, keep the momentum going for change in the criminal justice system. So share this show, tell a friend, text it to a friend, tell a stranger on the street. I don't care. Enjoy today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is John Padora. John is a Democrat running for PA state representative in the 37th district. Uh, John was actually a guest if you tuned in a couple weeks ago. I was actually a guest twice on our recovering through the crisis town halls, talking about addiction and recovery and the war on drugs and everything in between. Um, John himself is in recovery. He's uh, recovering from opioid addiction. He almost lost his career and his family and his life. He was able to emerge from that challenging period of his life with hope for himself and for others. Um, So that's one of the reasons why he's running for public office, and he's here to uh, share more about that today. John, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. If you bear with me about another five seconds, I'm trying to get to an area where things are working out better. Yeah, John's chasing chasing a good Wi-Fi connection in his house. His... uh, Internet provider just went into bankruptcy. So my, uh, my wife just informed me that they're working today too on the line. So okay. uh, that could have everything to do with it. So that's that's maybe another thing you can put on your uh, your agenda for your uh, state rep. 
get better internet access for the uh, community around you and yourself. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me today, John. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, a little bit about me. Like you said, my name's John Padora. I'm the Democrat running for state representative here in Northern Lancaster County. Um, I'm running on a platform to tackle the addiction crisis. Um, really one of the biggest things that inspired me to run was primarily my own interactions within our broken criminal justice system. Um, if you turn the clock back, about seven years ago, I was actually lying in a jail cell in county prison. And it was during those lonely nights that I spent alone in a jail cell uh, that I decided I didn't want to become another statistic. So I made a commitment to myself, to my wife, and to my children to get better. And I was really fortunate to be able to get back on my feet and be able to do that. Um, not everybody has that type of opportunity or the drive. I had a really, really strong support cycle around me. I had a lot of good people. And I've really been inspired to want to give back to my community. And we've been working really hard over the last year. And that's a little intro about myself. That's, that's great, John. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you back on, because you are such a, a great example of, you know, somebody who's, you know, made, made mistakes. Um, you did time in prison. I'm not going to say doing, you know, you doing time in prison was justified and we can talk more about that, but you know, you're running for public office. And if somebody saw you on the street, you know, the last thing they would, they would expect is you were somebody who was addicted, who spent time in prison and is, you know, is currently in recovery. So if you could just talk a little bit about that to start with running for public office right now, what kind of reception have you gotten from, from the community being someone who's in recovery and is, who's advocating for, you know, for changing a lot of these laws and the way that we look at, um, addiction. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that it's been challenging. We have a lot of work to do, but I can tell you that all in all, I'd say 80% or more of the interactions that we have with people in the community are very positive. I'm um, here in, in rural Lancaster County, just like most, you know, most parts of Pennsylvania, we have a widespread opioid addiction crisis that has just, you know, sunk its nasty fangs into the communities for the last decade plus. So almost everybody that I speak with has a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, a grandfather, a grandmother, somebody who suffered from addiction. So most of the time when I have these interactions with people and, and they find out about it, like you said, they, they tell me, oh, well, I, I never would have expected that from you. And, you know, you're, you're such a good example to people. And, and we need more people out there that are pushing the policy. So it, we have a lot of diehard conservatives in the area. So some of them are unable to see past the war on drugs. They're mm -hmm. so captivated in that, you know, Nixon era war on drugs, tough on crime that, that you know, they just kind of say off mark things like, well, well, you know, junkies belong in prison and things like that. So that's what I said. We still do have a lot of work to do, but I'll tell you what, I, I feel we've been really successful this year in just tearing down a lot of the destructive barriers that surround both addiction and recovery. Mm -hmm. um, it, it feels good to be a part of that. And I think if we keep pushing the message, um, within a couple of years, we're going to make real progress. Absolutely. Yeah. Prog I can see progress happening now. Um, I want to talk more about your policies and, and what you want to do once you get into office. But first, let's turn the clock back. And I'd like to hear about your, your experience with the criminal justice system, your personal experience. Can you tell us what that was like? How did you end up getting arrested and, and what ultimately your time in I guess I guess you would have been in a state a state prison or 
No, I, I only went to county prison, fortunately okay. enough. Um, but so, yeah, pr- pretty much my story, if I just condense it, a um, little over a decade ago, I was involved in a car accident. And um, I had a lot of chronic pain following that accident. So I was prescribed opioids. And to be honest with you, one prescription led to the next. It led to the next. Um, eventually, I ended up heavily abusing oxycodone, which the government came in, I think, in about 2008 and heavily regulated. Um, so the supply pretty much dried up from the street. And what, what, I, ha- what I ended up doing, like most other people, is I transitioned to heroin. Um, because it was it was cheaper, it was more readily available, it was a lot more potent. So it, it was a deteriorating downward spiral for me. And I can say that I fought I fought addiction on and off. I, mm-hmm. I'd have periods of sobriety. I did whatever I could, you know, to get in and get out get out of it. I'd get sucked back into it. Um, like I said, my wife was very supportive, so she always tried to keep me grounded. We had our first son, and I was clean for a large portion of the first year of his life. Um, pretty much what happened is I just, you know, fell back down the rabbit hole. And um, one night I picked up in the city and I was driving home after working a, a real long shift. I was fortunate that I wasn't intoxicated from it, but um, I fell asleep at the wheel and I didn't wreck my vehicle or anything. I fell asleep a couple of times and I pulled over. I was on my way trying to make it home because our, our son was sick in bed. And so I got pulled over and immediately they investigated me for DUI. And I ended up just going to jail that night for um, possessory drug charges. And what followed that was, you know, a year plus cycle of the criminal justice system trying to to go through all the motions. I eventually just got put on probation and saddled up with, you know, five or six thousand dollars in fines. And I was clean again for months until I had one bad day and I relapsed and I went back down to the city to uh, score again. And I got busted that day by the sheriffs because they recognized the um, guy that I was in the vehicle with. So that, that gave me a probation violation. So I immediately went, went to Dauphin County prison and that's it. Once you're in on the, on the violation, they revoke you, they resentence you. So the only charges that I was ever in jail for was possessory only. I was in possession of a controlled substance. Um, I needed help. I was just on the threshold of, you know, trying to get myself checked into rehab. I struggled with that. That's, I mean, that's really my story in a nutshell is I was in prison for possessory drug charges and I sat in there for, for months, not knowing when I was going to get out. And they actually issued a warrant for me because it was in another County because I couldn't attend a court hearing while I was in jail and their communication system is really poor. So I was under the impression that the, the day after I got out, I had a court hearing. I thought I was going back to jail for as long as one to two years. Hmm. Um, we were pregnant with our um, our second child, our daughter. And I, I felt like I was at the rock bottom of my life. And I just feel fortunate enough to be able to escape all that and move past it. Yeah. And it was on, it was on one of the, uh, recovery town halls where, um, one of the, one of the police chiefs said that, you know, people don't go to jail anymore for possession. I think it was one of the chiefs. That said yeah. That. And yeah. And, and you came back and now I understand why, because that's exactly what happened to you. Well, and they say that, and that's what, you know, kind of inflamed me about that because I feel he should have known that people don't immediately go to jail for possessory drug charges. If it's marijuana, I'm here to tell you, if you're in possession of cocaine, if you're in possession of heroin or pharmaceuticals, you're probably going to jail. Sure. There, it might not be for a year. It's usually a couple months or it's usually no prison time. Your first, 
you know, your first offense, but most people are repeat offenders. Most people that get caught with drugs are going to get caught again, whether it's through the probation, the parole cycle or whatever. And I've actually seen, I, I'll bet you that 50% of people, 50% or more people that are in jail for drug charges are there for possession only. Wow. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that could be right, but I, I wouldn't shock me. That's for sure. I know just, and that's not a statistical analysis or anything. I haven't mm-hmm. ran the data on that, but I can tell you being in county prison, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have a lot of time to sit around and get to know everybody. And, you know, everybody's like a, a jail yard scholar in there. So, you know, people study charges and how they can get out of it. And when, when you realize how many people are just in there for being repeat drug users, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty disturbing. People need help. And instead we're, you know, shoved into cages. So what do you think about, I saw this recently, and you're, you're a Democrat, so your opinion on this, uh, hope it doesn't get you in trouble, but I saw Joe Biden come out recently, and I forget how he phrased it exactly, and you've probably heard this, but it was something to do with drug, drug possession charges, they shouldn't go to jail, which is good, uh, but they should go into a mandatory uh, recovery. What, what do you think about that option? Uh Okay, so first of all, I'll address the beginning of that. I am the Democratic candidate for state house, but I can tell you one thing. I've been a lifetime registered independent. Um, I'm not a fan of the two-party system at all. I believe that both parties have failed America systemically. I'm part of the group where I believe that the best way that we can make change is to affect the party from within. So I'm kind of an outsider who, who has party support, but there's a lot of um, circumvention and navigation of the new Democratic Party and people that are trying to, to change everything from within because it's a lot harder to change it as an independent candidate. It's a lot harder to change it as a libertarian candidate. So I am a Democrat, yes, but that's a little bit of my perspective on all of that. Um, I almost disagree with all of Joe Biden's stance on that. I, I don't like, I mean, let's be real, he's he's the doctor, some really bad bills. Oh yeah. And <laughs> there's no getting out of that. And to be honest, I don't think they're in a period of racial justice, you know, criminal justice reform that uh, nominating a cop for a vice president and Joe Biden, who has a really uh, shady track record on all of it, was the best choice to defeat Donald Trump this year. So I, I don't agree with mandating recovery at all. I, mm-hmm. I don't think, I don't like mandates, period, to be honest with you. But um, we definitely need to we definitely need to figure out, I, I like more of the second chance program. I like giving people the opportunity. I don't like mandating anything. You have the opportunity. Do you want to get better? Do you want to go to jail? That's that's the type of ultimatum and choice that I would much rather see than a mandate. Yeah. And the, the second chance program, that's, you know, we've talked about that before in these recovery town halls. Um, I think the website's secondchancepa.com. And that's a, uh, it's a, coalition really put together by uh, Chris Dreisbach and others of you know experts in uh, the in recovery and uh, law enforcement and there's, there's uh, district attorneys who are involved so it's it's a it's a powerful uh, coalition that's coming together and it's great for Pennsylvania and I just would like to see it spread to uh, to more places so I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of your your policy stances here so around uh, marijuana, legalization and regulation. I do like how you say marijuana is not a gateway drug, according to a uh, University of Pittsburgh study. Um, And I also really like how you point this out, because a lot of people miss this. And I'll let you explain why you think this way, but that regulated sale of marijuana would end associated black market-driven violence. Can can you explain what you mean by that? 
So, I mean, if you do a historical analysis of alcohol prohibition, um, when alcohol was a prohibited substance in America, the the crime that ensued that, the, the crime that overtook America was, I mean, it was unreal because what happens is you allow these, when it's not regulated like that, you allow the gangs to come in and permeate it and to be able to distribute it. And basically I look at it as if we legalize marijuana, you're taking it out of the back alley and you're putting it in well-lit dispensaries. Um, yeah, there's not a whole lot of violence associated around marijuana, but large sales, when you're talking people that are dealing 10, 20, 30, 40,000, do you know how many robberies occur from that? Well, if we can cut down on that, like I said, if we can get it into well-lit dispensaries, we know that there's a, a correlation between legalization and, and a lower violent crime rate. And we just have to look no further than alcohol prohibition to see that. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk about before about uh, safe injection sites. So what kind of support do you, do you do you get from that when you're out talking about solutions? That's an area where we need a lot, a lot of work on out here in, in northern Lancaster County and the rural areas. I mean, it's it's controversial in Philadelphia. And one of the biggest things, too, is when when I advocate for marijuana legalization, the number one Republican hardline conservative response that I get is you just want to legalize all drugs. Well, to be honest, I don't believe in legalizing drugs, but I believe in decriminalizing all of them. I, I don't believe that people that use a substance that the government deems prohibited uh, constitutes you being incarcerated. That's my opinion. But we have to take baby steps with people around here. You know, that's the biggest thing. So so the safe injection sites, they're going to take some time. We're going to have to watch them blossom in Philadelphia. But if we keep uh, injecting and supplanting these ideas into people's minds and we slowly break down those stigmas, I think we're going to have a really good response. Yeah. I liked, uh, it was a Republican debate back in, I think it was 2012, but it might've been 2008, but Ron Paul's on stage talking about legalizing marijuana and they come back to him. So what about legalizing heroin? I bet you would legal- legalize heroin, wouldn't you? And he's like, yeah, I'd be in favor of that. What are you afraid you'll start doing it tomorrow? So it's, I mean, it, that's, that's the way you have to push back with these people, though, because they haven't thought through um, really the consequences of the policies, and the policies are making the situation worse in, in a lot of communities. So, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think the real systemic failure of drug usage in America is the war on drugs. I mean, obviously, we have an addiction epidemic that we need to tackle. But at the same time, the war on drugs has been raging on for how many years? And have we decreased drug use? No. In fact, I think there's actually um, an increase in drug usage over the last 10 years. So it just shows you how that, you know, tough on drugs, um, hard crime response, it it doesn't work. It's a major failure. Hey, just want to take a real quick minute here to talk about another Libertarian podcast. If you haven't listened to Good Morning Liberty, it's a five-day-per-week show. Nate and Charlie, I don't know how they do it, five days per week, pumping out fantastic content. Also, um, their Twitter game, I have to say, I've been following them on Twitter, is on point. At Good AM Liberty, check it out. I don't know if it's Nate or Charlie running the account, but whichever one is doing it, fantastic job. Um also, their, their show. So what is their show? They are trying to really take the onus of trying to change people's minds of how uh, people view libertarians. And they're trying to do this by leading with a message of compassion first, rather than 
um, you know, pounding on your keyboard and screaming at people like libertarians uh, love to do. So they're looking at ways in which policies impact people and using the principles of liberty to provide compassionate solutions. Uh, they both have uh, backgrounds in healthcare. They own a healthcare IT company. Check it out. Good Morning Liberty, wherever you get your podcast. You can also um, subscribe to their podcast by going to BernieLies.com, which uh, in an awesome, so awesome redirects right to their uh, their podcast links page. So check that out. Good Morning Liberty. One thing I do want to challenge you on a little bit, um, talking about it's a part of your criminal justice and opioid epidemic response, um, increasing the minimum wage above seven twenty-five per hour. So, what? Why do you think? Why do you think that would help to uh, to fight the opioid epidemic, for example? So, here's the reality: a lot of people like myself, you know, go to prison for a couple months or a year or two years or however long it is. When you get out of jail, if you're a, a chemist, I've known people that have, you know, PhDs and they get out of jail and guess what? They can't get jobs. They're making seven, eight, nine dollars an hour, or whatever they pay working at McDonald's. And when you get out of prison, you're saddled like me, for example, I had $10,000 in legal expenses on top of trying to navigate my way and provide for my family. That is so, so hard to do. So if people were able to get out and they were able to make 15, you know, 12, 13, 14, $15 an hour, it would provide people an opportunity where they wouldn't have to turn back to drug usage or, or drug distribution. There's so much pressure on you when you get out to pay these fines and the costs off and they will actually throw you back in jail if you lapse on payments. So a lot of times people get really stressed out when they're making nine, dollars $11 an hour because that's the only job they could get. And then they start thinking, well, Okay, maybe if I call my old heroin dealer, if I call my my old uh, crack cocaine dealer, you know, I'll just make a couple thousand dollars to pay these fines off and then I'll get away from it. Nine times out of 10, those people end up back in prison. So I, I know I said before that I don't really like mandating anything. Um, and that's generally pretty true. But I do support a minimum wage increase. And I've at, I don't have everything in front of me. But there have been studies that have shown a correlation between um, increased increase minimum wages and a negative decrease in overall crime rates and reoffenders um, going in and out of the criminal justice system. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the problem there sounds like the the fees. And you're you're not saying legal fees; you're saying fines that, that you're having to pay off associated it's, with your incarceration. I mean, so so for example, most county prisons uh, charge you fifteen dollars a day for room and board. That adds up really quick. Yeah, the fines on top of that, usually a couple thousands of dollars in fines, court expenses. A lot of times you have to hire an attorney. So it all compounds together and, and you have a boatload. Um, and you're right. I mean, the fees overall generally are the problem. But as in the foreseeable future, I don't see that going away. Um, that's, I think, a major proponent of the war on drugs it's, is it's a massive revenue generation scheme for the states. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest things that they don't want to step back from. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the stigma itself of coming out of prison, you know, being incarcerated, um, being in recovery and trying to find a job, that's, I mean, that, that's definitely something to overcome. But somebody coming out who has a, you know, background and you know, maybe a chemist probably isn't going to get a job as a chemist, but they'll probably be able to get a job for, for more than seven twenty five an hour. The people who I worry about are, say, say you raise the minimum wage to 20 bucks an hour. That's going to price out of the market, you know, a lot of the lower level, um, least skilled individuals who have, you know, 
no no skills. They're not able to uh, to to do the job and, and perform the job of somebody who would get you know twenty dollars an hour. Maybe the only job they can do in order to gain some experience to slowly work their way up the ladder is that you know doing landscaping for five bucks an hour. So it it might price them out out of the market. That'd be my fear on that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's you know it almost seems like any policy that you support there's three positives and six negatives, and you always have to have a plan to counter both of it. So I, I it took me a a long time to kind of get to that that opinion where I do support I'm an overall increase minimum wage. But one of the biggest things I think is I've just seen you know, the corporations and the top 1% over the last decade alone just subjugate more and more working class wealth. And at some of these companies, they fail to pay living wages. That's the way I look at it, is that if you work 40 hours a week, you should be able to provide for your family. You should be able to afford to live. And a recent study just came out and showed that you need to earn a little over $19 an hour in Pennsylvania or in Lancaster County um, to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment. So really, I think the biggest problem is all in all that our wages aren't in line with the cost of living all the way from the top to the bottom. So I, it, it's, it's a difficult uh, slope to navigate. Yeah. And, and, and I realize you're running for, uh, for local office, so we can't talk about the Federal Reserve and, and all, all, the, all those problems. But uh, I, d- I yeah. do like um, for taxation, you want to reduce, uh, reduce or eliminate the property tax. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so um, knocking on people's doors here in Northern Lancaster County, that's the number one issue is property tax. Property tax is so out of line. You know, these people live in their homes. They buy, you know, these beautiful rural homes and they get to retirement age and their taxes get jacked up. They're paying seven, eight, nine, ten, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year in property tax. And most people have to have to sell their home, you know, and they don't want to. It just we've been talking about property tax reform the Republicans have overall for for years and nothing ever gets done. So the reality is is we need to we need to just address it. I mean, first and foremost, one of the biggest things we've talked about for property tax reform is just completely eliminating it for anybody sixty two years and up because it's it's a it's a major issue for people like I said trying to retire. There's always ways to do it. The biggest way that we're going to do it is to find new sources of revenue and to cut wasteful spending. And it's funny because a lot of our politicians here in Pennsylvania, you know, the conservatives, that's what they run on, cutting wasteful government spending. But at the same time, their signatures are on the bills that subsidize fossil fuel profits, you know, taxpayer dollars, $2 billion a year going to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. So there's lots of ways that we can make up for the property tax. There's lots of new ideas. You know, maybe we need to completely rethink our public education overall. There, there's where there's a will, there's a way, and and I'm committed to to helping out with that because I watch it inhibit so many people ourselves personally. When we go to find a house, that's the first thing we do. Well, how much are the property taxes? Ten thousand dollars a year? Yeah, out of the question. So we need to definitely keep working on that. Yeah, well, there's probably more people today than six months ago or a year ago who are open to you know really looking at. Uh, revolutionizing education in this country than ever before seeing what's happening right now with COVID and, you know, kids having to do this online learning and it's, it's not going well for, for a lot of families. No. So I, I did want to ask, you know, obviously these are, I hate saying unprecedented times, but they, they really are. Uh, it's not being overdramatic. I don't think that to no. say there's never been really a time like this in the country where both parties have been so, 
really divisive. And, and it, it probably has something to do with uh, today with social media, which kind of breeds this this hate and this uh, this conflict back and forth. And I'm curious, you know, somebody who you you, you say you uh, sort of categorize yourself or, or used to as an independent coming into the Democratic Party. Um, how have you experienced, how have you dealt with um, sort of that conflict from both sides, from coming from the Republicans, the Democrats, and back and forth? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. it our, our country is torn between political ideology, and it's, it's really harmful. And one of the biggest examples of frustration with that is, you know, I'll be, you know, whether I'm holding an event, an online in-person event, which we haven't had too many of them, but when we did, people would like a lot of the things that we were saying, and they would approach me afterwards and say, oh, well, what, what party are you? Well, I'm running as a Democrat. Oh, that I yeah, I like what you said, but I can't vote for you. I mean, we, we get that all the time. And then, to be honest, there's people within the Democratic Party that believe if you don't toe the line and you have ideological differences, you know, you're not really too well liked by them. And that there's a reason um, that I don't have the endorsement of Governor Wolf that you know, I didn't get an Obama endorsement this round. Um, Did you ask for? Governor I didn't ask for it. So a lot of that stuff is specifically driven by data. And the data in our district says that we have a three to one, Republicans have a three to one registration advantage. And they look at the past couple cycles of really poor candidate performance. And that's because a lot of the candidates that have ran in this district haven't really waged campaigns. Um, they're what I like to call ballot occupiers. They get on the ballot mm-hmm. and they don't really do anything and people don't know who they are. And I'm not saying anything bad about them, but it's done a lot of damage to, to harm the data within this district. So a lot of those endorsements are specifically, they, they come from data. So that maybe I was getting off topic a little bit with that, but yeah, that's fine. the best way that I have countered that whole negative stigma is to just, you know, speak to people truthfully. Listen, I'm a husband. I'm a father to three children. I'm a blue-collar manufacturing engineer. A background in environmental science. I have vested interest in our community. The two-party system has absolutely failed us. That's a major reason why we're in the predicaments that we're in. And I'm here for the people. And one of the biggest things that's been able to help me out with that is my campaign finance report. I always boast to people. I say, well, check our campaign finance report. You'll see who I work for. We have small dollar donations from people all over the state, people within the district, uh, libertarian supporters, independent supporters, democratic supporters. You get onto my opponent's campaign finance report. It's PP&L, Exelon, um, you know, all the AstraZeneca, all the Masanto, Bayer, the big drug companies, the pharmaceutical industrial complex, private defense contractors. Um, you know, it's all, it's all corporate money. So it's, it's really easy to tell who someone works for despite their party affiliation, based by who's funding their re-election campaign every year. So that, that's pretty much been our go-to, is check our campaign finance report. I don't work for the corporations. So who are you running against, and, and what's, his, what's his story? What's his record? It's actually a her. I'm running against her, uh, Representative Mindy Fee. So I've been pretty open to say this the whole time. The reason that I'm running is because she's a ghost within our community. She does absolutely nothing for our community. If you want to know how she got her position or what qualified her, it's because um, her husband, who is actually a really nice guy, used to be um, the magisterial judge here in Mannheim. Well, he, we all know that the Republican Party is a pay-to-play system. Who pays the most money is the next one up for the nomination. And here in districts like the 37th, where there's a three to one registration advantage, 
they ba- it's more of a coronation than it is an actual election. So he was the next in line for state rep um, when the previous occupant resigned. Well, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Mm. So who was next in line but his wife, who was essentially a furniture salesman and really didn't have any political experience or uh, moral, ethical, or educational you know, advantages to, to mm-hmm. step up and serve. So that's, that's pretty much her story. And I've lived, she's been in power for eight years here. We've lived in the district for eight years. We've never seen her at one community event. Um, we've never seen her do anything for the local township. We've never, every, all of our friends and neighbors who have dealt with her office have had really poor experiences, myself included. Um, we pretty much just call her like a, a partisan placeholder for the Republican party. She doesn't really put her name on any bills unless they tell her so. She doesn't really formulate any coherent um, policy decisions unless her caucus leadership tells her to. So there's not really a whole lot going on. And, and I think the people deserve more than that. So, so what have you done to campaign during this time to really, you know, draw a difference, let people know that, you know, you're a, a real option that will actually be available in the community? Well, that's that's where it's been really, really hard because we haven't been able to be out knocking on people's doors. That really, really limited a lot of that. We had a lot of food drives that we were going to do, you know, a lot of in-person events, and most of all of that got canceled. So one of the earliest things that we did is when COVID first started happening is um, we basically organized a phone bank for my campaign, and we targeted people 65 and up, and we would basically just call them. It didn't matter what your registration was Democrat, Republican, independent. We called you on the phone. Hey, this is John Padora. I'm running for state rep. Um, what do you need? Do you have your food? Do you have your medicine? Do you have everything you need? And if people told us that they needed something, then we wrote their name and their contact information down and we found a way to direct them to resources or to people that could help them out. A lot of people were afraid to go out of their house and even pick up their medication. So we got a really, really positive um, response from doing that. We just had a lot of people who even just wanted to talk and they were just happy to hear from somebody. And a couple of people even made the comment to us, well, you know, I've lived here X amount of time and I've never got a call from our state representative or our senator. So that I, I enjoy helping people. I genuinely do. I'm not running to make this a, I'm not running to be a career politician. I'm running to, because I actually want to uplift our community because I want to do things for the people of Pennsylvania and that's just what we've tried to emphasize the whole time that, you know, we're here to make a difference and COVID's made it really, really hard, but we're still doing what we can. We've held um, a lot of online events, like little online town halls. Our Facebook page and website is always very responsive. Anybody that emails us or writes a message on there, I almost myself always try to personally respond to that. Um, we've handwritten almost 10,000 postcards to to people throughout the district, just touching base with them, just introducing ourselves. So really we're just trying to put the work in to, to get our platform out there and to let them know that somebody will actually be here to fight for them in Harrisburg. Do you have an idea, like based on looking at previous elections, how many votes do you think you, you would need to, to win the election? Yeah. So this is expected to be a high turnout year. So we, what we did is we modeled a couple different scenarios. We modeled a low turnout, a moderate turnout and a high turnout because of the volatility. Like we just discussed a couple of minutes ago, we're expecting a really high um, voter turnout this year. So my, my win number is hanging out around 15,000 and the average vote deficit is about 6,000. I think it's about 6,000 votes, maybe, maybe a little bit less than that. 
So what that means is if you look at the data, um, actually we have a lot of Democrats here that vote Republican and most of our libertarian and independent candidate or voters um, actually vote vote Republican also. So we don't have a whole lot of crossing over. So we've really, really tried to outreach to, to the Democrats locally to get them much more engaged and activated and excited to have a, you know, a progressive candidate. Um, I s- secured the Lancaster County Libertarian endorsement, which I believe I'm the first Democrat to ever do so. So we've emphasized really reaching out to independents and libertarians and hopefully, hopefully that a lot of the Republicans that actually vote libertarian will end up crossing over to vote for us. And then we've also targeted the Republicans that, you know, feel left behind. You know, a lot of the elderly ones that didn't feel like their life mattered too much to a lot of our lawmakers here from COVID. So our win number is around 15,000. And there's definitely definitely a way to, to make up those numbers if you put the work in. That's awesome. So, John, thanks for coming on the show, and I'm really excited to to watch your campaign. I'm, I'm glad that Chris Dreisbach connected us. Uh, before I let you go, I want to make sure, you know, say, say your parting piece, let people know, you know, why they should be excited for your campaign and maybe donate or, or volunteer if they're local. But uh, yeah, make sure to drop your drop your website and anything else. Sure. Uh, thanks, John. I really appreciate you having me on tonight. I'm really happy that uh, Chris connected us. He's connected me to a lot of really incredible people. So that's just been a, a pool of opportunity. Um, like John said a minute ago, there is a reason you should be excited about my campaign. And that's because my campaign emphasizes that working class people all over America can run for office. You don't need to be wealthy. You don't need to be groomed and you don't need to walk the party line. Whether you're somebody who was a former opi, you know, whether you're someone in long-term recovery like myself or you know, whatever it is, nobody's perfect. We don't, we've had generations of picture perfect politicians and we don't want anymore. There's a movement within America going on right now to push back against the two party system. And I believe that my campaign is emphasizing that. And our campaign is building infrastructure here in an area where we didn't have any for a long time. We want to push progressive, progressive policies here. We want to legalize and regulate recreational marijuana We want to end and push back on the war on drugs. You know, I support policies like raising the minimum wage that we talked about, environmental policy reform, you know, a green energy infrastructure, uh, boosting union jobs, you know, basically just making a commonwealth that works for everybody, ushering in a new era of uh, racial and criminal justice reform. I just want people to see that you can run for office, that through strong coalitions and through strong work, we can change our democracy. So my website, if you want to check it out, is johnpadura for statereprecom And um, you'll learn everything about my policy, my story, my background. You'll see pictures of myself and my family on there. Um, you can send an email on there. We always reach out personally. You can donate right on the website. If you can donate, I always ask everybody, 5 or $10, um, because really that's what we're asking for. We, we want to be a campaign that gets funded. That's a grassroots campaign that gets funded from small dollar donations. We don't get the 1000 or $10,000 checks from Exelon and PPNL, but we don't need it because you can't change the system when you take the system's money. So I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to run a campaign. Um, I hope we can really make some real progress this year. <laughs> that is such a great point. You cannot change the system if you take the system money. I love that. John Padora, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that episode with another awesome guest here 
on Felony Friday. A couple things before you go about your day and scramble off to listen to your next podcast. Just want to remind you of a a couple things. First of all, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Are you in it? Have you joined it? It's on Facebook. It's a great place to go to talk about the ideas of liberty, talk about criminal justice reform, all that great stuff. Just go to Facebook. You know that site, right? Just type in the top there, the search bar, Lions of Liberty Forum. It pops up. You click join. We let you in. Easy as that. Do it now. Um, also, for those of you who know me, who uh, follow me on the uh, social media, you know that I'm passionate about gut health, plant-based supplements, all that good stuff, really healing the body from the inside out. If you or someone you love um, is also interested in really natural healing, getting your gut healthy, overcoming things like uh, anxiety, inflammation, IBS, or maybe you're just trying to lose a few pounds. So much is tied to our gut. 70% of our immunity resides in our gut. 90% of our serotonin is made in our gut. 50% of our dopamine. The gut-brain access is a real thing, my friends. When they talk about a gut feeling, um, that's real because there's a connection there. You get the stress, the stress of feeling. You feel the upset stomach. That's a real thing. So if you're interested in learning more about gut health, probiotic systems, and healing from the inside out, striking the roots, let me know. I just did a webinar on it. So if you want to check it out, Hit me up on my social medias on Instagram at John Odermatt or Twitter at John Odermatt, or you can find me on the Facebook. That's all I got for you guys today. And if you have anything for me, any topic suggestions for Felony Friday, as always, you can reach out to me, Felony Friday at lionsofliberty.com. Hope you all have a great weekend. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.